greet you this morning in the name of Jesus. You know, we've uh, finished a week of revival meetings, and uh, I don't know how other preachers find it, but, uh, you know, it was a bit hard for me to focus on uh, what to share this morning. Uh, Dennis shared the sermon before the week of revival meetings started and had a very fitting sermon. Uh, what do you add to what has been already said? You know, you're used to sitting here and soaking it all up and you become saturated, appreciated what, everything that was shared, uh, but yet there's a lot that can be shared. And uh, so I just struggled just a little bit on what direction to go. And uh, so I've entitled my meditations this morning, uh, Illustrations of God's Love. When you think of illustrations, I don't know what your thoughts turn to, but uh, typically... If you would pick a book off, the, a nominal book off the shelf, usually there's the author, and then there's, in many times, there's an illustrator. And uh, this book here, The Biography of a Grizzly, it's a fictitious book. We know that grizzly bears can't write books. But uh, this is an old book. Actually, it's copyrighted back in 1899. The first copy was copyrighted back in 1899. This one was not quite that old. It's 1927. Still an old book. I found it in the antique mall over in uh, Red Wing this uh, summer when we were with uh, Larry's. And uh, this book was, when I saw it, it was special to me. It holds a lot of memories as a young person, uh, adolescence. It's, uh, we had this book in our home. And uh, it's not the same publisher. Our book was a bigger book, and I had... Uh, it was a little more colorful than this one, but it does have some illustrations in it. And ironically, when I picked this book, this is the first book I thought about because I, the author is, is actually the, uh, the illustrator as well. So it does not quite fit my, my concept here this morning. Ernest Thompson Seton is actually the author, and he also did all the illustrations in it too. And uh, I took this book along up to the North Shore this summer and was reading it to the grandchildren. But... Uh, so a lot of times, probably more often than not, the illustrator is not the same person as the author. Now, you know where I'm going with this. Think about my lesson, my meditations, illustrations of God's love. Now, God is his own illustrator, too. But I want you to think about how well you illustrate God's love to the world around you. So in other words, you could take your Bible, and it's, it's the Holy Bible. But God is counting on you to be the illustrator of that, to flesh it out. This was another book, uh, again, a nominal book. It's Milking Time. This was written by a, a family friend of ours, neighbor girl that grew up across the road from us where we live currently. And uh, she was reflecting back on her memory of growing up on a 40s, 50s, 60s dairy farm. And uh, Phyllis Ostolf wrote this book. They live up in Minnetonka currently. And uh, she had a at Barnes & Noble here back in April 2012, she had a, uh, the book was being published and printed, and she had a, a signing there. And so we went down and she, uh, her brother had consulted me about some of the terminology in the book. And she signed this book, she says, to Warren and Loss, my dearest friends, and the real experts in dairy farming, love Phyllis. But there, she was not the illustrator of this book. Uh, some friends of hers, Steve Johnson and Lou uh, Francher, illustrated the book the artwork in here. And this is, of course, a child's book. Typically, children's books have 
more illustrations in than adults' books. You know, the Bible here does not, you can buy, you can, you can buy Bibles that have illustrations in them, pictorial illustrations, but again, they're just man's concept. And uh, I'm not saying that's right or wrong. Uh, it does, we sometimes get some misinterpretations from them concepts many times, but uh, uh, God didn't inspire any pictorial illustrations. Uh, a little bit like the center column in Arnie's Bible, or any of our Bibles. That's not a wholly inspired Word of God. But the Word is inspired. So this morning we want to look at the Scripture. We want to look at the Bible and look at illustrations of God's love. And uh, you, I want you to think in your mind how you are illustrating God's love. God has illustrated it in lots of the stories. We will not be looking at all of the stories. I just have picked out a few of the stories for the first one, I invite you to turn to Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. <clears throat> and Adam knew Eve, his wife, and she conceived and bare Cain and said, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And she again bare his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of the sheep, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. And in the process of time it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. And Abel, he also brought of the first things of his flock and of the fat thereof. And the Lord had respect unto Abel and to his offering. But unto Cain and to his offering he had not respect. And Cain was very wroth, and his countenance fell. And the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted? And if thou doest not well, sin lieth at the door. And unto thee shall be his desire, and thou shalt rule over him. And Cain talked with Abel, his brother. And it came to pass, when they were in the field, that Cain rose up against Abel, his brother, and slew him. And the Lord said unto Cain, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not. Am I my brother's keeper? And he said, What hast thou done? The voice of thy brother's blood crieth unto me from the ground. And now art thou cursed from the earth, which hath opened her mouth to receive thy brother's blood from thy hand. When thou tillest the ground, it shall not henceforth yield unto thee her strength. A fugitive and a vagabond shalt thou be in the earth. And Cain said unto the Lord, My punishment is greater than I can bear. Behold, thou hast driven me out this, driven me out this day from the face of the earth, and from thy face shall I be hid. And I shall be a fugitive and a vagabond in the earth. And it shall come to pass that every one that findeth me shall slay me. And the Lord said unto him, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord set a mark upon Cain, lest any finding him should kill him. The first illustration we have of God's love here is God's love reaches out to the transgressor. And I didn't think about that, so the connection, the closely tied connection to our Sunday school lesson, you know, that again was another vivid portrayal of God's love reaching out to one who has sinned. And that's the number one point. God's love reaches out to the transgressor. It's interesting to notice a number of things here in this passage of Scripture. Um, you know, verse 1, it didn't start out that way. Eve's acknowledgment, she says, I have gotten a man from the Lord. And we would be of the concept and belief that there's a period of time in, in, in childhood that children are innocent. And I believe uh, we could build on that stock here that Eve is acknowledging that children are a gift from God they're innocent 
But there comes a time when that innocence is lost, and there's an accountability to their creator for that. And we see what, what, trans, you know, what transpired here. At some point, uh, Cain lost his innocence. Uh, notice verse 3. And in the process of time, it came to pass that Cain brought of the fruit of the ground an offering unto the Lord. That's, I believe, where the accountability came in. Cain realized that there was something required of him before God. And personal accountability to God, personal sacrifice, personal relationship to him. It no, it no longer mattered that his mother said that, I have gotten a man from the Lord. I shouldn't say it didn't matter, but you know, it, it came down to not so much uh, the connection, earthly connection, but rather a personal connection between him and his maker. Notice verses 6 and 7. God had respect in verse 4 unto Abel and to his offering, but unto Cain and his offering he had not respect. And again, I'm not going there exactly why, uh, but Cain allowed himself. He was very wroth. His countenance fell. But notice particularly verses 6 and 7. God in love, and the Lord said unto Cain, Why art thou wroth, and why is thy countenance fallen? I believe it was an act of love, an act of mercy that God came to uh, grace that God came to, uh, to, uh, to Cain and asked him. And then he challenges him there in verse 7, If thou doest well, shalt thou not be accepted. And he lays out the comparison there. He said, If thou doest not well, then sin lieth at the door. If we do well, we can be assured, I believe, of God's love. It's a, it's a, it's a trait that we want to build on. If we do well, God here clearly tells Cain, he said, if thou doest well, then thou shalt be accepted. Very simple, very elementary, very basic to understand. If we do well, we can be recipients of God's love. Whether we have been the aggressor or the, or the victim, let God be the judge and reach out and accept God's expression of love to us. Notice in verse 9, uh, God again, of course, Cain committed the murderous act that he did with, against his brother Abel. And, uh, and the Lord again in verse 9 comes to Cain and says, Where is Abel thy brother? And he said, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? And that's a phrase that is, is around in, in circles today yet. Am I my brother's keeper? Very, very clearly our earthly relationships have a direct impact on our relationship with God. And I think that's what God, I know that's what God was, was driving home to Cain, that we can't have uh, fractured earthly relationships and then have a right relationship with him. God in love came and appealed again to Cain. Of course, we, we read how the rest of the story goes. God uh, meted out uh, punishment on him. And Cain said, well, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And again, we see maybe another expression of God's love. Uh, God set a mark upon him. The Lord uh, said, on, uh, that who, in verse 15, Therefore, whosoever slayeth Cain, vengeance shall be taken on him sevenfold, and uh, lest anyone finding him should kill him. But uh, again, I'm impressed with the, the, the illustration of God's love reaching out to the transgressor. God certainly didn't have to do that, but yet he did. He reached down to Cain and besought him to do well. 
The second example I want to look at is back further in Genesis, Genesis chapter 16. The woman Hagar, Genesis 16, beginning at uh, verse 7. Just a little bit of the background here. Hagar here was Abraham's, uh, or Sarah's maid. And uh, Sarah, of course, was barren and didn't have any children. So Sarah had advised Abraham to uh, take Hagar as his wife, which he did. And then we find here breaking in at verse 7. And, uh, of course, that created conflict in the relationship there between uh, Sarah and Hagar. And in verse 7, And the angel of the Lord found her, Hagar, by the fountain of water in the wilderness, by the fountain in the way to Shur. And he said unto Hagar, Sarah's mate, Whence comest thou, and whither wilt thou go? And she said, I flee from the face of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Return to thy mistress, and submit thyself under her hands. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, I will multiply thy seed exceedingly, that it shall not be numbered for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said unto her, Behold, thou art with child, and thou shalt bear a son, and thou shalt call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard thy affliction. And he will be a wild man, and his hand will be against every man, and every man's hand will be against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. And she called the name of the Lord that spake unto her, Thou God seest me. For she said, I have also looked after him that seeth me. And I'll stop reading there. But uh, the lesson from Hagar is, I think as we think of the illustration of God's love here, is God's love is there, ready and waiting when we turn to him. I don't know if you noticed that. Hagar here was running away from Sarah, simply because of the the broken relationship that was in their uh, she had done some things to stir up Sarah's uh, anger and uh, who was at fault exactly I'm not sure but you know I could see Hagar could actually feel like she was a victim of circumstances ever been there yourself I've been there you know it was a lot of things that were totally out of your control and uh, you, you try and do the best of it and still not good enough well Hagar did what probably many of us do, tried to run away from it, and it doesn't work. Notice what God comes to Hagar in his love, and he says, you need to return to Sarah, and you need to submit. That's where we can experience, I believe, the blessing of God's love in our lives. When we learn to return, when we learn, when we learn to submit, and that's not, that's not easy. She had a decision to make, and God didn't say it was going to be easy. And I'm not telling you here this morning it will be easy. It may not be easy. You know, <clears throat> Hagar here could have kept on running, could have kept on going away. That wouldn't have been easy either. Probably it would have been harder because it would have been going against what God wanted her to do. But to Hagar's credit, she listened to God. She went back, and it lasted for quite a while. Jump ahead to chapter 21. We see a second situation here after Isaac was born. And uh, Ishmael here was uh, uh, making fun of Isaac. Verse 9 in chapter 21 of Genesis. And Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, which she had bore unto Abraham, mocking. And, of course, that rekindled all the old problems again. And, uh, you know, when when we're up against the wall, and again this time Hagar took off again. I, I shouldn't say she took off. She, God uh, had directed Abraham that, okay, you can put him out. And I want to break in reading here at verses uh, 
Let me just take off at verse 9 there again. And Sarah saw the son Hagar, the Egyptian, which she had bore unto Abraham, mocking. Wherefore she said unto Abraham, Cast out this bondwoman and her son, for the son of this bondwoman shall not be heir with my son, even with Isaac. And the thing was very grievous in Abraham's sight because of his son. I can only, you know, we can identify with, with Abraham's feelings here, I believe. You know, it was his son. Whereas with Sarah, there was... Not the connection. Verse 12, And God said unto Abraham, Let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondswoman. And all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. And also of the son of the bondwoman will I make a nation because he is thy seed. And that, that verse 13 stood out to me that God here is giving Abraham reassurance that, okay, this son is, does have some significance because he is thy seed. Uh, Howbeit, we realize that it was not the godly seed. Verse 14, And Abraham rose up early in the morning and took bread and a bottle of water and gave it unto Hagar, putting it on her shoulder and the child, and sent her away. And she departed and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. And the water was spent in the bottle, and she cast the child under one of the shrubs. And she went and sat her down over against him a good way off, as it was a bow shot. For she said, Let me not see the death of the child. And she sat over against him and lifted up her voice and wept. And God heard the voice of the lad, and the angel of the Lord called to Hagar out of heaven and said unto her, What aileth thee, Hagar? Fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. Arise, lift up the lad, and hold him in thine hand, for I will make him a, a great nation. And God opened her eyes, and she saw a well water, and she went and filled the bottle with water and gave the lad drink. God was with the lad. He grew and dwelt in the wilderness and became an archer. I'll stop reading there. But we need to return. We need to submit. And God is ready to help us. I was impressed with uh, God opening up her eyes. And, uh, you know, God in love opened up her eyes so that she could find sustenance for her and her son. And that's what God's love does for us. It helps us when we're up against the wall, seemingly nowhere to turn. This was Hagar's problem. She thought it was done. She thought it was over. But, you know, that's sometimes when God can work his best. When we're willing to say, okay, it's done, it's over. And then God, in love, came to Hagar, and she, he uses the expression, what aileth thee? And that's an expression we sometimes use among ourselves. You know, what's the matter with you, or what aileth you? Uh, God used that expression here with Hagar. He said, fear not, for God hath heard the voice of the lad where he is. And uh, he gave her instructions then, and opened her eyes so that she could experience sustenance for, his, for her son. God is ready to help us when we're up against it. God's love comes to us, but again, we need to be willing to return. We need to be willing to submit. The third illustration of God's love is found also in the book of Genesis here, Genesis 30. This is the experience with uh, Jacob and his two wives, uh, Lena and Rachel. And... uh, there's an expression that she makes, Leah, uh, Leah makes here in verse 20. They had the competition between the two wives here again. And uh, even in spite of the fact that Leah was productive in bringing children into the world, adding to Jacob's inheritance, I guess you'd say, in verse 20, And Leah said, God hath endued me with a good dowry, now will my husband dwell with me, because I have bore him six sons. And she called his name Sibulon. Uh, the lesson I, I see here in Leah's experience, she thought, she sought the love and acceptance of Jacob, uh, seemingly above all others. 
And uh, the aspect of the truth that I, I, I think that Leah missed was the fact that God loved her. God should have been her first love. And uh, as we think of priorities in our love, God's love, our relationship to him needs to be first. Uh, I look at her because, you know, of her, uh, the competition that took place between her and Rachel. And uh, she allowed that to dim her vision, her concept of God. We, we know where read that she acknowledged God's love to her. Uh, she does say there in verse 20 that God hath endued me with a good dowry. So she does give some recognition there. But yet in that she was desiring the acceptance of, of Jacob. Uh, when we recognize and understand God's love for me, for you this morning personally, I believe it helps us in all of our other horizontal relationships regardless uh, you know, what they, how strained they may be, how difficult they may be. Uh, I think that vertical relationship with God lays the groundwork for a proper love relationship in a brotherhood, in families, in communities. And I think that's important here in, in Leah's experience. You know, she allowed that competition in between the two wives to distort her relationship with God. And I know it's probably easy for me to say this morning, I wasn't in that conflict. But there, I may not be in a lot of conflicts that some of you face, but there will be conflicts in life, whatever the conflicts may be. But again, I think the answer is to experience God's love personally in your own heart and life, and it will help you to relate and express God's love in all of the other relationships in a horizontal way. Family, community, church. The fourth illustration of love is found in the book of Judges. Judges chapter 16. Maybe somewhat of an unlikely illustration, but yet it's, it's there. Judges 16. I'd like to begin reading at uh, verse 21. This is the story of Samson. Samson has, is, is a, was a judge in Israel and somewhat of a... Uh, interesting character. We and it's a kind of character. We wonder what if, uh, how much could have God done had He been perhaps more committed? But we notice here in, in chapter sixteen, verse twenty-one, uh, Joseph was again, uh, or Joseph, similar to our Sunday school lesson, was uh, distracted by the uh, Philistine woman uh, Delilah, and she uh, had him reveal all his secrets and took off the, his long hair, which consequently he lost his strength. And that's where we break in here. They had captured him. The Philistines had captured him and plugged out his eyes. And then in verse 21, they, of course, had, uh, had made fun of him. They used him for entertainment. Uh, verse 21, the Philistines took him, put out his eyes, brought him down to Gaza, and bound him with fetters of brass. And he did grind in the prison house. Not a very pretty picture, is it? Howbeit the hair of his head began to grow again after he was shaven. Then the lords of the Philistines gathered them together for to offer a great sacrifice unto Dagon, their God, and to rejoice. For they said, Our God hath delivered Samson, our enemy, into our hands. When the people saw him, they praised their God. For they said, Our God hath delivered him into our hands, our enemy, and the destroyer of our country, which slew many of us. 
And it came to pass when their hearts were merry that they said, Call for Samson, that he may make, make us sport. And they called for Samson out of the prison house, and he made them sport. And they set him between the pillars. And Samson said unto the lad that held him by the hand, Suffer me that I may feel the pillars whereupon the house standeth, that I may lean upon them. Now the house was full of men and women, and all the lords of the Philistines were there. <clears throat> there were upon the roof about three thousand men and women that beheld while Samson made sport. And Samson called, now notice particularly verse 28, Samson called unto the Lord and said, O Lord God, remember me, I pray thee, and strengthen me, I pray thee, only this once, O God, that I may be at once avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And Samson took hold of the two middle pillars upon which the house stood, and on which it was bore up, of the one with his right hand and of the other with his left, and Samson said, Let me die with the Philistines. And he bowed himself with all his might. And the house fell upon the lords and upon all the people that were therein. So the dead which he slew at his death were more than they which he slew in his lifetime. Or in his life. The, the lesson that I see of God's love here is the fact that when we get to the end of the rope and cry out to God, I believe God's love is there for us. You know, we may look at mistakes we may look at bad choices. We may look at failures. But you know, those aren't final. Those mistakes, those bad choices aren't final if we don't stay down. Verse 28, I believe that's where Samson was at. I think he felt like he was at the end of his rope. He said, the way he prays to God, he called on the Lord, Oh, Lord God, remember me. <laughs> and uh, he said, remember me just this once, O God, that I may at once be avenged of the Philistines for my two eyes. And the impressive uh, destruction and victory, you might say, for the children of Israel that he, he accomplished there in that last turning to God. Now, again, we wonder, you know, throughout his life, how much more could have been accomplished. Again, we have to leave that in the hands of God. Uh, God answered his cry. When he was at the end of himself, God answered his cry. God's love was there for him, and God used him in a mighty way. So he destroyed more of the Philistines in that one incident than he did throughout the rest of his life. How many more could have he destroyed? We don't know. But again, the lesson we want to remember from uh, Samson here is the fact that if you and I have a desire, and that's, that's one of the things that I, I have always, has always challenged me and impressed me, is the fact that, you know, the, the idea of the committing the unpardonable sin, you know, if you have a desire to serve the Lord, I believe that's an indication that there is hope there that you can turn you cry out to God, and God will answer that. God will be there offering his love to you. We are never in a place where God can hear our prayer. Philist, uh, Samson here died among the Philistines. Uh, probably not a, a chosen place. I didn't read the last verse there, but his brethren actually came down then and got his body and buried him there with his fathers. And uh, So that's somewhat of a small consolation, I guess you'd say. He at least wasn't buried there with Philistines, but uh, they left him come down and retrieve his body and uh, took it back. But the consolation for us is that God's love is there. If we have the desire to turn and to cry and to call, God will remember you. God remembered Samson. God will remember us. The fifth illustration is in the book of Ruth. Uh, Ruth chapter 3. Ruth chapter 3, begin uh, reading at uh, verses 
14. And again, this, this, these stories are not new. I'm assuming that you know a lot of the background of these stories. Uh, Ruth, of course, was uh, because of the famine in the, or rather Ruth's mother-in-law, because of the famine in the land, had, had left Israel. And uh, the daughters, or the sons, had married daughters of uh, a foreign nationality. And then when they heard the famine was over, she came back. The one daughter-in-law came along with her, which was Ruth. And uh, breaking in here at chapter 3, verse 14, they, uh, they were gleaning, they were poor, they had probably mortgaged their portion of property that had been divided out to them. And uh, here in chapter 3, verse uh, 14, she lay at his feet until the morning and she arose up before one could know another and he said this was Ruth laying at the feet of Boaz who was uh, a near kinsman and he said let it be known not let it be known that a woman came into the floor and he said bring the veil that thou hast upon thee and hold it and when she held it he measured six measures of barley and laid it on her and she went into the city and when she came to her mother-in-law she said who art thou my daughter and she told her all that the man had done to her. And she said, These six measures of barley gave he me, for he said to me, Go not empty unto thy mother-in-law. Now notice particularly verse 18. Then said she, Sit still, my daughter, until thou know how the matter will fall, for the man will not be in rest until he hath finished a thing this day. Boaz here had a responsibility, and uh, the, the lesson I think we want to recognize here is God's love toward us should motivate us to be productive workers. I don't know what you think about it. If you would ask the nominal person today why they're working, uh, well, probably they'd say, I owe, I owe, so off to work I go. Uh, but is that really our motivation? I, I trust our motivation for working is more than that. Our motivation for working should really be our commitment and love to God. I don't care, uh, not a pun on words here, but you know who's, what for field you're in whether it's farming, uh, technology, or carpentry, or medical, whatever it may be, whatever field you're in, I believe the motivation should be our love to the Lord. That motivates us to be productive workers. Uh, most people would probably say, nominal people today would say, you know, we, we need to provide, we need wealth. Par could be another selfish reason. But a lot of those reasons are selfish. We, we work to be productive in God's kingdom, to build God's kingdom. Boaz here, I believe, is a, a, a well-organized and skillful, skillful worker. He was a negotiator, too. If we go on into chapter 4 here, and I'm going to just continue reading there, Boaz realized that there was another nearer kinsman than him. In verse four, or chapter 4, verse 1, Then went Boaz up to the gate, sat him down there, and behold, the kinsman of whom Boaz spake came by. Unto whom he said, Ho, such one, turn aside and sit down here. And he turned aside and sat, sat down. And he took ten men of the elders of the city and said, Sit ye down here. And they sat down. And he said unto the kinsman, Nehemiah, that is come again out of the country of Moab, selleth a parcel of land, which was our brother Elimelech's. And I thought to advertise this, saying, Buy it before the inhabitants and before the elders of my people, if thou wilt redeem it, redeem it. But if thou, redeem, if thou wilt not redeem it, then tell me that I may know, for there is none to redeem it beside thee, and I am after thee. And he said, I will redeem it. Notice, he said, I will redeem it. Then said Boaz, What day thou buyest the field of the hand 
of Neoma, thou must buy it also of Ruth the Moabitess, the wife of the dead, to raise up the name of the dead unto his inheritance, upon his inheritance. And the kinsman said, notice verse 6, the kinsman said, I cannot redeem it for myself, lest I mar mine own inheritance. Redeem thou mine own right, redeem thou my right to thyself, for I cannot redeem it. And I think that's interesting here as we see the, the nearer kinsman than Boaz. He seemed interested in the land, but he wasn't interested in, in the responsibility of providing for Ruth and Neoma along with that. And uh, I think that speaks well for Boaz. He realized that this was a package deal, and he was committed to that. Okay, so I get the land. I'm willing to take Ruth and Neoma along with it. Verse 18, Neoma had good advice for Ruth. She said, sit still. And that's sometimes what we need to do to see God's love manifested in our experiences. We need to be patient. We need to sit still. She said, my daughter, uh, sit still, my daughter, until thou knowest how the matter will fall. For the man will not be at rest until he have finished a thing this day. And then we see Boaz, of course, going through all the proper proceedings to secure this uh, uh, and provide for Ruth and Neoma, and also the land as well, in raising up. Of course, we know that's the godly line of the Redeemer, uh, that through uh, our Lord comes. Are you gleaning in God's field today? He will redeem, he will restore through his love. Going to the New Testament, Matthew chapter 5. As we think of examples or illustrations of God's love this morning, Matthew chapter 5, begin reading at verse 43. Ye have heard that it hath been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that ye may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he maketh his Son to rise on the evil and on the good, and sendeth the rain on the just and on the unjust. For if ye love them which love you, what reward have ye? Do not even the publicans the same? And if ye salute your brethren only, what do ye more than others? Do not even the publicans so? Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. The example we have here is, uh, the illustration is New Testament followers of God. That's what God's calling us to. Notice in verse 43, he says, uh, Ye have heard that it has been said, Thou shalt love thy neighbor and hate thine enemy. You know, that's, he's saying that's natural. That was a natural expression. But then he calls us to something in verse 44 that I would say is supernatural. He says, But I say unto you, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Love, bless, and pray. How can we do that to our enemies? Well, I believe it's only, we can only live out and flesh out verse 44 by God's love being in our hearts as well. We can only love, bless, and pray for those which uh, persecute us, which despitefully use us, if God's love is in our hearts. May be the children of your Father, which is heaven. And God here gives another illustration of his love to mankind. He says, and he goes on, and he says, he sends his, the sun rises on the just and on the unjust. He sends the rain on the just and on the unjust. God's love is, is, is 
demonstrated to all. And he calls us to that same level of expression or illustration. We need to be expressing and illustrating God's love to every, everyone. Notice verse 48, he says, Be ye therefore perfect, even as your Father which is in heaven is perfect. Now the word perfect here does not mean flawless. If you go back to the original Greek, it actually has the idea uh, of functionality. And I like that expression. Uh, you think of how functional we can be in God's kingdom if we allow God's love to flow through us. Uh, am I functional in illustrating God's love? Uh, God calls us to, to that level of commitment. Be ye perfect or be ye functional as God is functional in shedding his, his love to the just and the unjust. God wants us to be uh, functional in expressing his love to, to sinful mankind. The seventh and final illustration I have is back in 1 John, and you may have uh, surmised I'd end up there because that's John is in his writings probably mentions the word love more than any other writer uh, in the in his uh, in his epistle I think he mentions it some 50 times and also in the gospel I think it's probably some 50 times but going back to 1 John chapter 4 uh, I'm going to read uh, that chapter 1 John chapter 4 Beloved, believe not every spirit, but try the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets are gone out into the world. Hereby know ye the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is of God. And every spirit that confesses not that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. And this is that spirit of Antichrist whereby, whereof ye have heard that it should come. And even now already is in the world. Ye are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. They are of the world, therefore speak they of the world, and the world heareth them. We are of God. He that knoweth God heareth God. He that is not of God heareth not us. Hereby know we the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and every one that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. He that loveth not knoweth not God, for God is love. In this was manifest the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Notice the illustration of God's love. He sent his only begotten Son. Herein is love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the perpetuation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we ought also to love one another. No man has seen God at any time. Notice that. No man has seen God at any time. How are they going to know what God's love is? They need to see it through us. They need to see God's love illustrated through our lives. I think that's why John says it. No man has seen God at any time. God is counting us to be illustrators of his love. If we love one another, God dwelleth in us, and his love is perfected in us. Functional. Think about that again. Hereby know we that we dwell in him, and he in us, because he hath given us of his spirit. And we have seen and do testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwelleth in him, and he in God. And we have known and believed the love that God hath to us. God is love, and he that dwelleth in love dwelleth in God, and God in him. 
Herein is our love made perfect, that we may have boldness in the day of judgment, because as he is, so are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casteth out fear, because fear hath torment. He that feareth is not made perfect in love. Notice verse 19. We love him because he first loved us. Our capacity to love comes from God. We cannot conjure it up in our own strength. But we love him because he first loved us. If a man say, I love God, and hateth his brother, he is a liar. For he that loveth not his brother whom he hath seen, how can he love God whom he hath not seen? And this commandment have we from him, that he who loveth God love his brother also. John the Apostle, who was banished to the Isle of Patmos, uh, telling us about love. How could he do that? Uh, receiving and taking in God's love in our lives will make us functional servants of his. God is counting on us to be illustrators of his love, as the, uh, the Apostle John writes here. No man has seen God. How are they to see him? They need to see God through us. It's interesting to notice, I don't know if you noticed, I was going to mention the, how many times the word perfect is used down through this passage. But uh, God desires that we be functional and perfect in his love. Well, this morning, the conclusion, the lesson, the challenges I leave with you, will you be an illustrator of this book, the Bible, of God's love? Will you do well? Will you submit and point others to Christ? Will you look and acknowledge expressions of God's love in your life? All of us have been recipients of God's love. Don't let failures keep you from experiencing God's love. Work in love. Again, follow Christ's example in love and be functional in that love. May God help us to be illustrators indeed of his love as we relate to our communities.